0: The title of the talk this evening is The Five Aggregates Are Empty. In this talk, I'm going to touch on some aspects of uh, Buddhist psychology and philosophy, but I uh, would like to say something about the spirit of all this before we start. The Buddha said many times that he only taught for one purpose, and that was to understand suffering and the end of suffering. So all of his teachings were directed to that end. And I hope we can hold the talk tonight in that spirit. The Buddha didn't construct philosophies in order to have intellectual debates with people. And the teaching uh, of tonight is meant to be uh, useful in the direction of uh, leading us out of suffering. So because it may get a little technical at points... I hope you will hold it in that spirit, and that basically means take what seems useful from it and leave behind what doesn't. You don't have to argue with the Buddha. If you don't agree, you can just leave his thoughts to one side. Take what is useful and leave the rest. In one of his key teachings uh, called Dependent Origination, the Buddha traced the origin of our suffering back to this condition In the Mind called Ignorance. And he said that uh, because of not understanding things the way they really are, which is the factor of ignorance, we crave. And then craving becomes the direct result of suffering. And he expressed their relationship in this way. Obstructed by ignorance and driven by craving, beings have been wandering in this samsara since beginningless time. So the talk tonight uh, is going to touch on both these topics of ignorance and craving. Basically we suffer because we don't understand things the way they really are and we live in some degree of delusion. The Buddha expressed this in a very pith way at one point when he said of us as uninstructed beings, in whatever way they conceive the truth is ever other than that. One of my teachers put it in a slightly more direct way. He said, everything you think is wrong. (laughs) So that's what we're going to explore tonight. And that's why this quality of don't know mind, which was mentioned in the questions this morning, uh, is so helpful. We often think, because of clinging to views, a tendency that we all have, we often think that we know the way things are, and we forget that we don't yet know everything. So it's helpful to remind ourselves that we don't yet know everything. I like this line from a Rumi poem. Where did I come from? And what am I supposed to be doing here? I have no idea. (laughs) This is a good spirit in which to approach our meditation. So wisdom is the faculty uh, that leads us to see clearly the way things truly are the unfolding of this faculty and the insights that it brings are really the heart of what our meditation is about. So we're encouraged, as I think we've been suggesting all along the way, we're encouraged to investigate our experience in this very direct and penetrating way to find out how things really are. So we need to keep a fresh and open attitude as we look, understanding that we don't yet know everything and that's part of the reason for uh, our bondage. One of the questions for investigation that was also mentioned this morning in the question period was this basic question uh, that can be phrased in a few different ways. Who am I, or what am I, or the f- form that I particularly like is, what is this? What is this, meaning Are the the totality of our human experience. What is it really that's going on here? How does it hang together? How does it work? This is really what our uh, practice is leading us to investigate. Typically in our current state, when we look at ourselves or someone else, we see a person. But one of our ancient texts said that, the Vasudhimaga said, this is a very um, uninformed way to view uh, other beings they said it's as though a skilled butcher was was carving up the carcass of a cow and in carving it up into different slices of meat the butcher was saying cow 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 when in fact the butcher carves it up and says you know tenderloin rump sirloin ribs and like that so, this text says that a person who says person is similarly uninformed, and that one who has directly investigated with some depth this mind body process would not say person any longer. So, what would one say? When the Buddha looked at a human being, he saw in one of two ways, at least he described in one of two ways. The first is in terms of the six senses. Let me read you an excerpt from one of the suttas. Bhikkhus, bhikkhu means monk, but it also means anybody who's undertaking serious practice. So all of us for this week come under this heading of bhikkhu. Bhikkhus, what is the totality of life? Listen, attend carefully, and I will teach you the totality of life. That's pretty bold, isn't it? I don't recall Marx doing that. Freud doing that, or Einstein doing that. So here's the Buddha on the totality of life. It is simply the eye and sights, the ear and sounds, the nose and smells, the tongue and tastes, the body and touches, the mind and mind objects. Anyone who said they were going to describe anything beyond this as the totality of life would not be speaking of something they knew about. So this is a good description, isn't it? It's the six senses and their bases. It pretty much describes our human experience, and it maps very nicely onto our meditation practice. We've been doing a lot of exploration of the senses and the objects that correspond to them. The Buddha used this model primarily to instruct people how to cut through craving. The model that he used to instruct people how to cut through ignorance more often was this model called the five aggregates. This is just another way to describe the totality of our experience, but it's sliced up a little bit differently. As we tune into this model of the five aggregates, it lets us see the world, see human beings, see our own experience the way the Buddha saw So understanding in this way, seeing in this way, leads in the direction of a liberated mind because it is a way of seeing that does not take the I or the ego or the false sense of self as a part of the description. It is a uh, non-I-centered way of viewing our life. Even though this talk may sound uh, philosophical and intellectual, I I do want to share with you that my own investigation and reflections along these lines have been one of the uh, largest sources of freedom for me in my meditation practice. So it's something that I've worked with a lot and that has had a big effect in my life. So the five aggregates. The Pali term that we're translating by aggregate is khanda, Many of you may know it by the Sanskrit term, which is skanda. It's just one of those common words uh, in Pali or in ancient Indian languages that means heap or bundle. It doesn't mean anything esoteric or spiritual. Like if you're going out to collect a bunch of twigs for firewood and you gathered them up, you'd call that a kanda of twigs or a kanda of firewood. It means a bundle, a collection, a gathering. So when I hear the word aggregate, it sounds kind of very technical to me. It sounds like something that would be really hard to wrap my mind around, and I must have to think about this a long time before I can get it. It's like a road-building surface. You know, if you build a road out of aggregate, who knows what's in there? (laughs) So the word that might be better is components. These are five components Within us, but I think even that is a little too technical. The translation I like best is kinds of stuff. <laughs> so these are the five kinds of stuff that make up uh, human experience. And just to name them, they are form, or you could say material form, feeling, or sometimes to be more specific, we call it feeling tone, perception, mental formations, sometimes we'll just say formations. And the fifth is consciousness. And I I want to go through and just describe briefly what each of these is. Material form is the translation we use of the Pali word rupa. Sometimes this word rupa is translated as body. uh, But that's not a complete uh, translation. It's much bigger than that. For instance, this statue that is behind me is sometimes referred to as a Buddha rupa like the body of the Buddha or the form of the Buddha. But rupa, as it applies to our experience, is wider than this body. It includes the whole of physical nature. So sometimes it's described as materiality, uh, the realm of matter, or material form. Mostly I'll just use this short word, form, but know that this is what we're pointing to. Here's the definition from the Buddha. Any kind of material form whatever, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, this is the material form aggregate. So it's all of physical nature, and of course it includes this body, but the the word rupa does not divide the physical world into this and everything else. It simply sees everything, matter, as part of this material form aggregate. That's why it says either internal or external. So notice that in this categorization, there's not a division into this particular part of the physical world, which we tend to call my body, and another part of the material world, which we might call your body. It's all just part of form. In addition to, uh, it's often used to, dis- to describe the world as sights. So often the, um, the object of sight is described as material form. But in addition to sights, it includes other kinds of interaction among physical matter, such as sounds, smells, tastes, and touches. It's all under the aggregate of form. And I think it's interesting that we take this body very much for granted as maybe the most important object in the universe, and we've been very close to it for a long time now. But the way that we know it primarily is only through um, the sense of sight and the sense of touch. Of course, we can also smell it and taste it and sometimes hear it. And most of those are not in the realm of pleasant experiences. (laughs) Nonetheless, they are available to us. But primarily, this thing that we call body, we know because we've seen it, and we see it, and we've touched it, and we touch it. So these are are the two avenues to knowing this thing that we take so for granted and that we cherish uh, so deeply. So... Uh, I'll use some examples through the evening to illustrate the others, and I'll use sound as the example that we'll talk about. When you hear the sound now, that is an example of form, or rupa. And we'll come back to that again with the other aggregates. So I'd like to read uh, from this sutta, uh, from a book, an ancient book of the Buddhas called the Samyutta Nikaya, which is called a mass of foam, where he describes the nature of the aggregates. This is the opening of the sutta. On one occasion, the Blessed One, which is another name for the Buddha, was dwelling at Ayodhya on the bank of the river Ganges. There, the Blessed One addressed the bhikkhus thus. Bhikkhus suppose that this river Ganges was carrying along a great mass of foam, a person with good sight would inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in a mass of foam? So too, bhikkhus, whatever kind of form there is, whether past, future, or present, internal or external, gross or subtle, inferior or superior, far or near, A bhikkhu inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it, and it would appear to them to be void, hollow, insubstantial. For what substance could there be in form? The next of the five aggregates is called feeling, or uh, more often I might say feeling tone. The Pali word is vedana, And the term feeling here is not used as a synonym for emotion. It's a particular quality of every sense experience we have, which has a nature of being either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral in this element called feeling tone. So when you experience a sensation in the body, a sound that reaches the ear, a sight that you see, an emotion or a thought, each of these will have a feeling tone associated with them which may be pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. This quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neither is what's referred to by feeling tone or vedana. It accompanies every type of sense experience. Interestingly, the feeling tone is said to be a mental phenomenon, and all the other four aggregates are mental uh, in nature. So this is kind of interesting. Um, When you hear the sound of the bell, that's a nice tone. Most of us would experience that as pleasant. Now, especially because it comes at the end of a sitting, (laughs) it becomes really pleasant. So that's a little bit conditioned. And so some of our uh, reception a phenomena as being pleasant, unpleasant, or neither, is conditional. So that's a way of saying it's not intrinsic to the object itself, but it's our mind's relationship to it that creates it. And that's why Vedana is considered a mental quality or factor and not physical. I'll give you an example of this. There was a 7-Eleven down in Southern California that was having problems with um, young people hanging around outside in the parking lot and dealing drugs. And they were not a particularly welcoming crowd to the customers that the 7-Eleven wanted to draw in, so they were wondering how they could get them to move off their parking lot to somewhere else to do their drug dealing. And they tried asking them politely and uh, didn't work. They tried other forms of harassment and, and they didn't work. So, the idea they had was to play some music. The music they chose was Montavani. Now, my mother brought me up playing Montavani. You know, you may know the swelling strings often applied to sentimental movie soundtracks. This was the nature of Montavani's recordings, and she, she liked it very much. Uh, the drug dealers didn't. And so, as they cranked up the volume on the Montavani, the drug dealers found somewhere else to do their business. <laughs> it was very successful. So what my mother found as pleasant feeling tone, the drug dealers found is very unpleasant. So this is a mental uh, phenomenon that happens with every sense experience that we encounter. The third of the aggregates, the second mental aggregate, after feeling tone, is called perception uh, the Pali word is sanya. In Buddhism, this word may be used a little differently than it is in um, Western language. It's been so long since I've looked at it outside of Buddhist context, I'm not 100% sure. But I have some sense that in Western language, or maybe even Western philosophy, perception will refer to um, a, a datum of sense experience. So we might talk about the perception of that sound as being the sound itself. In Buddhism, the term is used differently, Um, and this is pretty universal across all the schools of Buddhism that I know. The term sanya is almost always translated by perception, but the, the meaning of it is more like recognition, so that when we hear a sound, we recognize it as a sound, and in fact, the sound of a bell. When a friend walks up to us And we recognize them as being our friend. We know their name. That is a moment of recognition that is called perception. As you look around the room right now, you may be um, seeing things as I do, which is perceiving in the space in front of us objects like uh, women, chairs, men, cushions, floor, ceiling, fans, lights. These are acts of perception. Another way to say it is classification or categorization, taking what is essentially just a smear of form and shape and color and organizing it into categories that we recognize and know, which we then call objects. Now, we've been doing this for so long, and it's so habituated that we normally are not even aware that this is taking place. Sometimes, but rarely, we come upon something that we can't perceive, and then we realize, oh, the brain is stuck here. I was uh, in a monastery in Burma. It was the first night I was visiting. And it was a very large monastery. They were feeding about 800 people a day out of the kitchen. And I'd come in... um, toward the evening, and so they were going to offer me uh, some food in the evening and brought me into the kitchen. And when I walked into the kitchen, which had a stone, a big kitchen with a big stone floor, there was this mound of something on the stone floor. And all I could tell is it was green and it was a mound. (laughs) And beyond that, I could not put it in any category that I knew. I didn't know if it was vegetable or mineral um, I presumed it was not a living animal, but they have some big frogs over there, so you know you never know and so i just I looked at it for a while, and I finally had to ask somebody what is that and It was some kind of pea or bean that the laypeople had been shelling to prepare for lunch tomorrow and had just been stacking up in this big pile but i couldn 't tell that i couldn 't recognize the or Bean, and, and I couldn't see the shapes of the individual ones. And I realized then, oh, my perception is stopped at this point. Sometimes we don't necessarily per- perceive things accurately. I was doing a, a long retreat here one fall, and I was doing walking meditation down the hill from the meditation hall on the grassy area down there. And as I was walking you know, very slowly back and forth, quite present, I started to hear this marching band come up Pleasant Street. And that stopped me. (laughs) But I just stopped and listened, and I thought, why would a marching brass band be coming up toward IMS in the middle of the autumn? And I sat and listened, and I could definitely hear drums, and I could hear brass instruments, and I couldn't think what else would be making that sound. And it kept getting louder and louder, just as though it was approaching. So I finally turned around, and one of the staff members was wheeling a garden cart with big bicycle tires down this gravel path over here. And it was the garden cart bouncing and the tires bouncing up and down and the gravel that was making all the sounds that I was hearing as a brass band. My perception was not right. It was not a brass band. But that wasn't really so problematic. I could just turn around and see it. But the Buddha said where it is problematic is that we perceive things as being permanent that in fact are going to change. We perceive things as being a self that in fact don't have a self. And because of these misperceptions, we suffer. And we'll talk more about that as we go. Again, it may be um, hard to remember a time when we couldn't perceive the world the way that we do now. We forget that it's a learned activity. Many of you understand this much, much better than I do. But there's an interesting story that Oliver Sacks tells, the, the neurologist, about working with a patient who is an adult who had lost his vision as, I think, an infant, and then had had it restored as an adult man through surgery. When they took the bandages off, everybody thought that the patient would go, wow, how great to see again. And in fact, he didn't have any idea what he was seeing. And it said that, after some time of the patient waking up and looking blankly out at an un, uh, unimaginable tangle, the surgeon finally spoke to him and said something like, well, and only at that point did he realize that the white blur in front of his eyes must be his surgeon's face because he recognized the voice. And in fact, the man never really learned to perceive well again because the circuits couldn't be trained so easily as an adult. So this act of perception of recognizing the categories is very, very important. It goes on quite automatically, and yet it is a a central uh, factor in our functioning and in our insight. So when um, this sound comes, we recognize that that is a bell, we recognize that that is a bell to end the sitting. So that's the act of perception taking place. The fourth of the aggregates, the third of the mental aggregates, after feeling tone and perception, is the category called uh, mental formations, sometimes called volitional formations. The poly term is sankhara. This refers to the whole range Of thoughts and emotions that are created in the mind, as well as the more subtle mind states uh, generated from meditation. So, a thought is a a formation, Um, a reaction of anger or desire or fear or doubt is considered a mental formation. The beautiful emotions that Susan talked about last night of love, compassion, and joy are mental formations, and the refined or more subtle meditative states of tranquility, concentration, equanimity, are also considered mental formations. These are all conditioned factors that may be present or uh, mostly may, can also be absent in any given moment of experience. This is the whole realm of moods, emotions, thoughts, and states of mind. That are a part of our experience. So, for instance, when we hear the bell at the end of a sitting, there are usually a couple of volitional formations that happen after perception. The perception is it's the bell that ends the sitting. Often, the volitional formation that follows that is relief oh boy, the sitting's over. Then there's often a sense of ease in the mind and often the thought, wow, I could sit forever now. You notice how much easier it gets after that bell rings? So these are volitional formations accompanying the sound of the bell, the perception of the bell. The last of the mental aggregates is consciousness. This is the feature that uh, Joseph described in his talk on the opening night this knowing quality of mind. The Pali term is vijnana. Consciousness is that which, in the Buddhist term, that which receives, you could say holds, knows, every sense impression. So it's consciousness that is knowing a sound, knowing a sensation, knowing a thought. In the example of the bell, it is consciousness that has held the sound, which is the form aggregate, that knows the feeling tone, which is pleasant, that registers the perception, holds the perception of bell, and that also knows the sense of ease or the thought, I could sit forever. So consciousness is there with each of the other aggregates. The understanding in uh, the teachings of the Buddha is that each of these experiences arises together with consciousness. So it's not that consciousness is there waiting and then an independent thing comes up and is known, but rather the understanding is that the sound and the knowing come together, arise together as one unified experience, which has two aspects. In this case, the sound is one aspect, The knowing of the sound is another. So, these are the five kinds of stuff that make up our experience in this model form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. According to the Buddha, this is a complete set. That is, every aspect of our experience can be put in one of these five categories. Now, why is that interesting? Or why is it liberating? I think the answer is that there is not a need for an I, for a self, either as a separate category or within one of these categories. There are only form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. And when one has examined the mind-body process closely enough and found out that this is all that constitutes experience, then one knows from direct contemplation, direct realization, there is no other thing called I to be found anywhere. So there's no central self, no ongoing entity at the center of all this, to whom it's happening, uh, who is experiencing it all, or who owns any of it. There are only form, feeling, perception, formations, and consciousness. We'll come back to this a little later. So later in the sutta, the Buddha compares this production of the five aggregates to a magic show. What he's saying is that we have been enchanted by a magic show, and that's what creates our uh, clinging to life. But once we understand how the magic show is put together, we aren't tricked anymore. So it's interesting to reflect on this in terms of magic. I was reading a book not long ago about Uh, Harry Houdini and how he managed his amazing escapes. I don't know if you've heard his story or seen people do things like this, but Houdini became very famous, I think it was in the the teens or 20s of the past century, by these uh, feats of escape. So he would let himself um, be completely tied up, his hands would be bound, Chains would be wrapped around his body, locked with big metal locks. He would then be um, bundled up and put into a wooden box. The side, the side of the box that was open, would be nailed shut, and then the box would be tossed into a river, where, of course, it would sink to the bottom. And then, amazingly, a few minutes later, Houdini would swim to the surface to the acclaim of the viewers and the media and everyone else. It seemed like magic, but in fact, every element of it was a clever device. So, magic tricks are always much more interesting when you don't know the (laughs) trick, but I'm going to spoil it for you and tell you the tricks. So, the first trick is that the person who tied his hands bound them very loosely so he could wriggle his hands free. Even though it looked like they'd been tied well, he could wriggle his hands free. The second trick is that within his mouth, he had a bunch of tiny picks and wrenches. And as soon as his hands were free, he could reach into his mouth, get the picks and undo the locks that were holding the chains together. He was a very talented lock picker. He could do this in the dark, in cold water. Once the locks were off and he'd disentangled all the chains and the ropes that were binding him, he was still in a wooden box, but one side of the box was a false side. It was nailed on only very lightly, so all he had to do was to kick it out. But this whole um, procedure took about three minutes. So imagine you're on the bottom of a riverbed, there's water rushing over you, and you're under there for three minutes. So the very first thing Houdini had to learn was how to hold his breath. And he could hold his breath for a full three minutes underwater in a cold river. And so then all that was left was for him to swim to the surface and be acclaimed and showered with riches. So that's a magic trick. And if you had known it, then all the individual steps were cool, but it was no longer magical. So, the Buddha said, it is with us in this magic show. Suppose, bhikkhus, that a magician should hold a magic show at a crossroads, and a keen-sighted person should inspect it, ponder it, and carefully investigate it. It would appear to that person to be void, hollow, insubstantial. What substance, monks, could there be in a magic show? Even so, whatever form, feeling, perception, formations, consciousness, a person inspects it, ponders it, and carefully investigates it, it would appear to that person to be void, hollow, insubstantial. What substance could there be in form, feeling, perception, formations, consciousness? Form is like a mass of foam and feeling just an airy bubble. Perception is like a mirage, and formations like a banana tree. I didn't get this one at first. If you know, if you know banana trees, uh, the trunk is hollow, and as soon as the bananas have flowered once, the trunk never grows back again. So it's a hollow tree, unlike most trees that we know. Formations like a banana tree. Consciousness is a magic show, a juggler's trick. All these similes were made known by the kinsman of the sun, another name for the Buddha. So here there's a pointing to the the emptiness, the hollowness, the void, insubstantial nature of all five aggregates. This is a lot to take in all at once. And... um, requires some reflection. So one period of retreat that I had, I decided I wanted to study and look into this quality of emptiness. So I read a book by a wonderful Buddhist author named Nagarjuna. This book was written around uh, 100, 150 A.D. Nagarjuna, for my money, is the greatest Buddhist philosopher after the Buddha. And his... Book his key book called uh, Root Verses on the Middle Way has been translated into English in a few good translations, so it's easy to find translation and commentary on this work. So I was uh, doing quite a lot of formal practice of sitting and walking, and I was also reading this book, which is quite dense and, and philosophical, and it was starting to get under my skin. And I was starting to to see what Nagarjuna was pointing to. He has a way of everywhere you want to take a resting point on some ground of cutting that out from under you. It's a, really a fascinating book. So one evening, I actually had a dream about Nagarjuna, and I was uh, it was about the book more than about him as a person. In the dream, I was standing in front of a full-length mirror looking at my image in the mirror, and I asked the question, why is emptiness important? And curiously, it was the image in the mirror that replied. And the image in the mirror said, because it means you don't exist. End of dream. (laughs) And that was a great message, because of course it doesn't mean that form, feeling, perception, formations, consciousness don't exist. It means that the owner of those, the bearer of those, the one who has the burden of the aggregates, doesn't exist in that way. There is no self that has to carry this burden. And when the self goes out of the experience of the aggregates, they're felt as much lighter. This doesn't happen in a continuous way, but it happens from time to time, and there is a great sense of lightening up when that happens. Jack Cornfield tells a story where he was in Sri Lanka, he was visiting this old monk, I think was a patriarch of one of the, the schools at that time, and visiting the old monk in his bedroom, and the monk said, I hear you teach something about this in America. What's your understanding of Buddhism? And Jack said, Well, oh, my understanding, my deepest understanding is within this whole mind-body process, there is no abiding self. And the old monk just laughed and laughed, and he said, no self, no problem. No self, no problem. That was his understanding. But for the most part, we don't quite see things in this way. We have this sticky sense of self that, um, that comes in. We don't see the magical nature of the display of the aggregates. How can we tune into that insubstantial quality that the Buddha is pointing to in this discourse? Partly, I think our culture works against us. Western culture is founded on a pretty materialistic worldview, And if I can just speak for what I think is the common 20th or even 21st century worldview, I think it's something like this. Um, Physical matter is the ultimate truth of things. It's the ultimate um, basis for everything else. It is uh, the source of all that arises. Um, It is various chemical combinations that lead to physical matter forming into life, and it is life formed from physical matter that gives rise to consciousness. When we see in this way that the physical reality is the ultimate reality, then we feel that um, we have only existed since we've come into this world, that the world uh, is the first thing, and when we die, we go out of the world And it continues. This is only one way of looking. It is, I think, the common Western materialistic way, but it is only one way of looking. Other Indian schools of philosophy view consciousness as the ultimate reality, the primary stuff of the universe. And from that point of view, they see world systems as one of the arisings in consciousness, but with consciousness being more fundamental than matter. And so appearances just like uh, dream images within consciousness. The Buddha himself took a kind of a middle way between these two worldviews. In his, in his teachings, he said that consciousness and matter depended on one another. And he compared them to two Uh, stalks of twigs that were leaning up against each other. He said, if you take away one, the other will fall over also. That is, if you take away matter, consciousness will fall apart. But if you take away consciousness, matter will fall away. But in our Western materialist view, we tend to forget that, to some extent, this appearance of the world depends on consciousness, when we take it as the fundamental reality, we forget that link. So what if we bring that um, bring that back in a little bit Part a big part of the insight and investigation that comes in practice is the understanding of this uh, transitory nature of our experience, and one of the ways that it often first starts to open up to people is in the investigation of form through the direct experience of the body. When I came into meditation, I thought of the body as something solid. My idea of it was shaped by the anatomy books I'd read. I sort of knew where the organs were and where the bones were, and I really thought that's what the body was as ultimate reality. In meditation, I was encouraged to take a direct look at the experience of the body from within. And what I found there was not solid. But rather, everywhere I turned my attention, I encountered change. The sensations weren't solid when I looked at them closely, but they were more categorized by pulsation, vibration, movement, on, off, weaker, stronger, more painful, less painful. Everywhere I would put my attention, I was only getting a changing sensation. That started to loosen up the idea of solidity that I had had about the body. We also, of course, are encouraged to explore the other senses. So sounds happen so fast that that's usually an easy area to see this insubstantial nature. Thoughts, as Joseph was describing this morning, just pop up out of nowhere gone in a few moments, where was it? When we look at it closely, there's very little weight in a thought. Emotions can be very strong and compelling, yet if you're asked to meditate directly on them, turn your attention directly to them and be mindful of them, sometimes they just evaporate, just like a cloud when the sunlight shines on it. Tastes and smells also quite light But for me, the sense door that was um, most uh, impenetrable was the sense of sight. I would look out at a setting like this. Everything looked unchanging. It looked really solid. So the reflection that that I went through was to just inquire a little bit how this sight has gotten created in this consciousness. And of course, it's just simple kind of 7th grade science We know that for a sight to appear, there has to be light reflected off the object, traveling to the eye, millions of photons every second, impinging on the retina, stimulating a signal. You all understand this way better than I do, that travels through the optic nerve up to the brain, stimulates a certain region, and then through some really magical process, sight appears that sight that we are seeing now is dependent on the millions of photons impacting the retina every second. If those photons stopped coming, the sight would cease, would fall away. So we recognize when we reflect in that way that this sight that seems so solid is actually being regenerated many times a second by the electrical activity of our nervous system, and the translation of the brain into consciousness. Very mysterious process, this last step, but something like that seems to be going on. So this sense, too, is insubstantial. Something else that I I used to reflect on and, and play with if I asked you the color of this book, I don't think it's a, a real secret. Most people would say this book is blue. But I started to ask myself, wh- wh- where is blue? Because as you also know from science, this appears blue because the blue is getting bounced back to your eyes. And the book is actually absorbing all the other colors. But the blue being reflected. So really, when you think about it, if you think about the book itself, it's everything but blue because the blue is what's coming back at you. So where is blue? It's not really in the book, is it? It's just in consciousness. So this became uh, really interesting for me because I started to realize that what I had taken to be the real world And the ultimate reality wasn't in the way that I was used to thinking about it. Again, I'm sure you all have reflected on this also, but we tend to forget that it's like this. What we see is just a representation of the world that comes in through our senses and then gets created by some interplay between our nervous system and our brains to come out as consciousness. We're not in touch with what's independent of our senses and nervous systems. It's only a representation of the world filtered through our own system. But we tend to forget that, and we tend to give it a solidity and an ultimate reality, when in fact it's only held as you might say, a bubble, in consciousness. Even the sense of ground that we so take for granted, if you think about that, is only the sensation of hardness underneath our feet or our cushion. But that sense of hardness is also held in consciousness. So although this room has a ground, which is the earth or the floor. Consciousness doesn't have a ground. In consciousness, there's nothing underneath that sense of hardness. There's just space. When we start to see the world in this way, there's some language that can help remind us. And I I like to play with the idea, instead of calling things objects of the world, rather to call them appearances. We live in a world of appearances, but we, we can't actually know what the reality of those objects are independent of our own senses. So we live in a world of appearances, and that's why the Tibetans have this really lovely phrase. They call this a magical display. And this is exactly the same thing that the Buddha is pointing to in calling consciousness a magic show. How is this created? I don't know. It has its own laws. The physical laws, the chemical laws, the biological laws all still apply. And yet we don't quite know what they apply to. So we have this magical display of appearances that's sometimes compared to a dream. And really, this is an interesting thing to reflect on, too. Is there any real difference between a moment of experience in a dream and a moment of experience in waking life? The Tibetans have explored this really thoroughly through dream yoga, and they say in meditating, sometimes they get confused. They're in a dream, and they don't know if they're in a dream or in waking life. So they say there's a way to find out, the way to check. You pick up a book, you open it to a page, and you read a passage. You close the book up, you put it down, you wait a moment, you pick it up again, you turn to the same page, and you read the same passage. If it reads the same, it's real life. (laughs) If it reads differently, it's a dream. Just in case you need to know. But that's how close together these experiences are. Accomplished meditators cannot tell the difference sometimes. So one of my Tibetan teachers put it this way. He said, everything that appears has no real existence whatsoever. And that means no substantial or solid existence. It's all just flickers of our nervous system, creating a representation of something That's why it's also compared, as the Buddha did, to a mirage or a bubble. The sense of emptiness which lacks the center of I is the way the Buddha usually used um, the term emptiness in his teachings, the lack of central self. But this insubstantial nature that we're talking about now more has to do with the emptiness of phenomena. Sometimes called emptiness, another word for it is uh, transparency or insubstantiality or openness. This, that this is a potent insight is pointed to from the Heart Sutra. If you know the Heart Sutra, near the start of it is uh, this lovely little uh, sentence. While practicing deeply the paramita of wisdom, That means the quality or development of wisdom. The Bodhisattva Avalokiteshvara perceived that all five aggregates are empty and was saved from all suffering and distress. So this perception is pointed to in one of the most ancient texts as being the direct avenue to liberation. So, one way that we can understand emptiness is by seeing this insubstantial, transitory quality of phenomena. Why is that so helpful? Because when we understand how fragile and how insubstantial it is, we're less likely to cling. When we understand it completely, we don't cling anymore. But because we forget and we think it's solid again, we cling again. And the other aspect is this absence of self within the whole show. This is um, a key misunderstanding. And uh, a simple way to think of it is the way we identify with the body as either being I or mine. This again is from the Buddha. He's talking to uh, one of his chief disciples, Sariputta, He says, Whether I teach the Dhamma briefly or at length, those who understand it are hard to find. It's kind of plaintive, isn't it? Those of you who are professors and teachers probably know this feeling. (laughs) Those who understand it are hard to find. And Sariputta, who's a great student, replies, Then, O blessed one, now is the time for it. Now is the time to teach the Dhamma in brief or at length. There will be those who will understand. So the Buddha continues, Well then, Sariputta, this is how the training should be done. Concerning this body with its consciousness, let there be no self-centered imaginings of I and mine and no such bias. With regard to external objects, let there be no self-centered imaginings of mine and no such bias. We shall then abide in the attainment of the heart's liberation and the liberation by wisdom. This came clear to me at one point in my practice. I was a monk in Thailand, and as a monk, I had the privilege of seeing autopsies. I know some of you are physicians and have had this opportunity many times. I was 32 years old and had never been next to a dead body before. And I walked into the uh, autopsy theater and immediately stood next to the body of a young woman who had been recently fished out of a canal. And she became the first um, subject for the autopsy that took place. So I took a seat in the theater and watched. Because you all are scientists, I'll share the R-rated version of this. The first thing the coroner did was to make an incision from one ear over the top of the skull and through the scalp to the other ear, and having made that incision, then he pulled down the two pieces of skin that were exposed and in doing so peeled the skin away from the face. Never having seen a dead body before, this was shocking. It was, it was powerful. Then he took a saw, and in Thailand it was a hand saw, and sawed off the top part of the skull in order to remove it and expose the brain. And then he went through and opened up the chest cavity and took out the internal organs and weighed them. I sat, then sat through two other autopsies that were performed in a similar way. Then I walked outside, going back to the monastery. The hospital that this was at was near a big parade ground, the central parade ground in Bangkok, where I had to catch my bus. So I walked out, and I was very altered. But I walked out into this sunny day, and I was just watching the people walk across the parade ground. There were mothers with their children. There were couples holding hands. There were old women coming from the market with their uh, shopping carts, all walking by in the sunshine. And I was there in a very present way. And what I said to myself was, All I could see were walking corpses. Everyone looked like the same thing I had just seen on the autopsy table, but they were animated. And then I later thought to myself, what do I mean by a walking corpse? And the way I was seeing it was there was just a body, but this body carried a brightness that shined out through the eyes. And that brightness was very alive, was very vital, animating the body. But that brightness was completely of the present moment. It didn't have any past and it didn't have any future. It was only here now. But because of this peculiar capacity of memory, our thought processes can construct an imaginary past and project it forward into an imaginary future, and lose track of this completely present moment experience that is all that we are. When I saw in that way, I also saw how insubstantial everybody's life was, including my own. All I had was this moment and this very transitory body. So although it sounds like this this opening to emptiness might be a cold or clinical vision, what I found for me is that it was very moving because I saw that we're all in this same predicament. We're looking for some kind of security. We're craving something to rely on in this world that is only a flickering image constructed by our nervous systems, in a momentary existence where we don't know what's going to happen in the next moment. And the only way to find peace or freedom in this situation is to let go, is not to cling. And it's so hard to learn to do and this is our common, universal human condition. In the Buddhist tradition, Kuan Yin is said to be the Bodhisattva of compassion. It's said that she hears all the cries of the world, the cries of sorrow and the cries of joy, and is always available for us to call on for her support and her understanding. But You know, Kuan Yin is not a beginning meditator. She's a bodhisattva. So her compassion is very strong, but her wisdom is also very strong. She understands that there is suffering, but there is no one who suffers. And so in her understanding and her compassion, she balances this open heart and this imperturbable composure. I'll just close with this line that is sometimes attributed to her. The winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? The winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? Let's just sit for a moment, please.